This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 153 for January 2021 with Dr. Michael Spiegel on Urban Legends of Church History. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. Happy New Year from Echo Zoe Ministries. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 153 for January 2021 with Dr. Michael Spiegel of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the author of Urban Legends of Church History, 40 Common Misconceptions. In this episode, we discuss a handful of the urban legends from the book and get into some interesting aspects of both church history and theology in the process. As always, show notes for this episode are available at the website. You can access them directly at echozoe.com slash 153. And with that, here's my discussion with Michael. Michael Spiegel, it's such a pleasure to have you on Echo Zoe Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, I uh, appreciated the opportunity. I saw you tweeting a few months ago that you would uh, put out a book and uh, we're looking for podcasts to, to join. And that's, that's great. i <laughs> looking for get for guests. So it worked out well. And right. uh, so we're going to, we're going to talk about your book uh, that, that deals with church history. Mm-hmm. But before we get started with that, maybe let's just introduce you and, and uh, you know, who's Michael Spiegel. Sure. Well, uh, I am the chair professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm not from Dallas originally, originally from Minnesota and uh, spent a little time out uh, in the Northeast at Philadelphia College of Bible, now Cairn University. And then I've been down here for the last 20 uh, plus years, um, did my PhD here, and then have been really focusing on early Christian history and church history. Uh, historical theology is one of the uh, main areas that I that I teach here at Dallas Seminary and um, have been doing that uh, uh, for about 13 years now. And so we... Um, yeah, as you mentioned, the the book. Yeah, it is a church history book, and I know that can sometimes bring a lot of yawns as a, <laughs> an initial reaction. Uh, but as you, as we'll probably discuss, it's a little bit different kind of spin on on church history. Yeah, definitely no yawns for me. I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I like church history. It's a fun topic for me. I like history in general. It's kind of something mm-hmm. I, as I become an adult. You know, I've I've grown to like history and enjoy. Uh, secular history, world history, world war history, you know, we're doing uh, World War One with my kids and homeschooling, and that's been enjoyable. Yeah. Um, kind of that middle part of, you know, we, we did uh, 19th century history and then into World War One, mm-hmm. and, and, and I enjoy that. And then, of course, as a, a believer, I, I very much enjoy church history. And I also enjoyed right. the format of the book. You've got um, small digestible chapters. You do what, six, seven, eight pages each, Mm -hmm. uh, broken into four sections. You do early church, medieval church, reformation, and modern with 10 chapters per section. And uh, 
Yeah, it's uh, I, so I, it seems it seems daunting. Forty chapters or forty, you know, the title is "Urban Legends of Church History" and it's forty forty misconce- common misconceptions. Um, but as you said, they're in small bites. You know, you can sit down and probably one sitting, just read through one or one or even two of them at a time and get the gist of of the uh, the position and the argument what we're stating. So uh, those small bite sized digestible pieces, I think, make for easy reading. Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration to yeah, um, that's a great question. It's a long story. I'll tell you sh- the short version, though. Se- several years ago, I did uh, a blog post on my website, just a, a top 10 uh, myths of church history. And these are things that that I noticed uh, teaching church history at the seminary level over about a decade and realized, you know, a lot of my students are, are being fed certain things from church history that just aren't true. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of identified those into the top 10. And I pitched the idea then to a uh, um, I have a an agent that kind of handles all my book book writing things and you know love the idea and I kind of put it then on a back burner never really developed it busy doing other things but uh the publisher Broadman Holman B&H they had started a kind of a series called Urban Legends uh started with Urban Legends of the New Testament Urban Legends of the, of the Old Testament and somebody had come across that uh, that post of mine and thought, you know, we need somebody to do the <laughs> urban legends of church history. And so uh, I was actually approached about it and, and I was already had something in development and it just kind of met. Uh, we met kind of there in the middle. So it uh, was it's technically part of a, a series done by by being a academic. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've done uh, some other ones. Some of those publishers, though, the Christian publishers have some interesting series. You know, I think it's, they do. I yeah. think it's Zondervan has the different views yeah, series the, yeah, stuff the four and views, four views, yeah, five views, that kind of thing. Those are fun yeah, too. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of fun to get, get into those different yeah. series. And yeah. So, yeah, I'll have to check out the other urban legend series then. Cause I did yeah. enjoy this. Like I said, well, I was thinking that maybe there's a, a good way to handle it to kind of wet people's whistle a little bit and we mm-hmm. get people interested in uh, the subject is just to take time permitting, of course, a couple chapters from each section. So two, you know, there, there's four sections, two chapters from each section. So we'll see if we have time to get through it. But um, I just picked the ones that I thought sound interesting. I did want to mention, I don't know if I was picking up what anything that was deliberate but I, I kind of noticed some a little bit of thread where you address some some heretical or unorthodox views by way of church history myths. Sure. Did, yeah, and we actually do a little bit of uh, addressing heresies. We do a little bit addressing just good basic theology as well. So mm-hmm. and good church history. So the the exposing the myths or the urban legends or exaggerations is kind of a way to. To also get into some, I think, positive and even practical uh, teaching from church history. So you're not walking away just with a bunch of myth busting. Uh, a reader's going to walk away with, a, I think, a healthier understanding and appreciation of church history, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, a good discernment between orthodoxy and heresy throughout church history. And then um, we end each chapter with a little section on, you know, what, why is this even important? What, yeah. what can we glean from this practically? And I think that was a big value for us as well. Yeah. Well, I picked up on, you had like a couple ch- couple chapters at the beginning where you get into some things like that Dan Brown had brought out with the Da Vinci code, some kind of those, right. those myths and legends. And, and then some of the, um, the tension between the uh, Catholicism and, and the reformation and, um, right. And, and addressing, uh, like Arianism and, 
um, some of the old heresies that go back into the early church. Yeah. So some of our myths, you know, they come from pop fiction. They come from movies. Sometimes they come from, uh, frankly, your history teachers, sometimes Mm -hmm. your pastors, uh, sometimes from cultists knocking on your door, things like this. Um, So, you know, we didn't go about trying to make a bunch of enemies out there, but uh, you know, when you're, when you're kind of exposing some of these uh, falsehoods that that's, that's somewhat inevitable. Yeah. Well, it's definitely Protestant, which is good. Yeah, it, sure. Yeah. We, okay. we even say this right up front. Look, we're coming at this from a, a distinctly a conservative Protestant perspective. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be seeing things our way, but hopefully they'll be engaged by the, uh, by our treatments. Well, there was one, I think I, maybe I didn't add it to the list. Um, it was kind of a nice uh, breaking a myth that uh, uh, about Catholicism. About uh, mm-hmm. I think it was uh, burning them at the stake a lot. You had a was that right? Right. Yeah. 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 There was the we did do deal with a myth in the from the medieval period that uh, the Roman Catholic Church burned you know countless heretics at the stake, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, just first of all, technically, that's not true because um, the, the church doesn't never did have the authority to actually execute anybody. Technically, they mm-hmm. would find them guilty of heresy, then hand them over to the state. Well, it just so happened that the laws in the state made heresy a capital offense. So, so technically, it was the state doing executions, but usually those numbers, you know, millions or hundreds of thousands yeah. of thousands of people is grossly exaggerated anyway. Now we do say that one person burned at the stake for their beliefs is too many. You don't want to make it sound like, well, it was only a couple, few hundred. Um, Obviously that's not our position, but we do have to deal with uh, the facts and the figures as they actually are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And I bring that up, you know, like I said, it wasn't even on my list, but I brought it up just, just to show you're, you're, you're fair. I mean, even as a Protestant, you're, we're not going to jump on this urban legend that paints them in a negative light when it's not true. Exactly. Right. Well, let's start, uh, early church history right off chapter one. You talk about Sunday worship and how that's introduced and, Mm -hmm. and, um, and the myth that, that that was, uh, added later, a little bit later in church history. Sure. Yeah. And the myth is, and I encountered this a lot, uh, not just from sects and, and, you know, things like the Code or whatever, but this idea that the earliest church worshiped on Saturday, that was their day of worship uh, and day of rest. And then somewhere along the line, usually centuries later, and, and oftentimes it's pinned on poor Emperor Constantine. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a big, big fan of Emperor Constantine, but that poor guy has been, <laughs> yeah. been every pretty much bad thing in church history has been pinned on to that guy. Um, so, you know, that he changed it to Sunday because that was the day of worshiping the sun and he was a pagan and trying to mix. Well, that just simply is not true. Um, the evidence as we walk through both in the New Testament, but also uh, in early Christian writings uh, from first in early second century, these are people who would have been associates and students of the apostles. Uh, they make it very clear that no, no, they worshipped on Sunday because that was the day of resurrection, and it mm-hmm. was a confession of faith uh, uh, in uh, the resurrection of Jesus, mem- commemorated every week. Um, now, it is true that that Jewish Christians. Um, Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah and were 
you know, orthodox like you and me, um, did tend to keep um, the law, aspects of the law at least, and and did observe the Sabbath, it seems, for several centuries. Even and to, even they to would this worship day, on they, Sunday. They still they do, yes. To this day. In fact, yeah, my own I, church right. meets in a messianic synagogue. We rent yeah. space. They yeah. they worship on Saturday and we worship on Sunday. Yeah. 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 But I appreciated that. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm tend to want be one that like I'll have scripture scripture pop into mind that might refute some of this mm-hmm. stuff. So I mean, obviously, sure. there, it is in the scripture that they're meeting on Sunday. I liked how you pointed out that it was they met on not on the first day but on the eighth day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the early Christians said, "Yeah, no, we're we're it, uh, Sunday seventh day is the Sabbath, and the eighth day is is kind of looking forward to this new creation." So they're kind of looking at it uh eschatologically and through the lens mm-hmm. of end times and seeing this as a foreshadowing not just of the first day of the week but um this eternal um perfection that we're going to experience when christ returns so so the, in a sense I, I we like to say look the uh, worship on so it, it's not a big big deal uh mm-hmm. what day you worship but there is something special about Sunday in that it was the his re- day of his resurrection it was also um uh, looking forward to this uh, eternal uh, new creation that we're all uh, hoping for. So, th- so there are some confessional elements involved in the Sunday observance. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, another one I found interesting out of that early church period was um, the myth that, or the urban legend, sorry, that uh, the sands of the Colosseum are stained with the martyr's blood. Right. So to speak. So th- uh, yeah. It, uh, this is this is a hard one, frankly. And uh, when I first heard it years and years ago in my my studies, I didn't really want to believe it because I'd been to Rome, and maybe some of your listeners have been to Rome before. It toured the Colosseum, and and you want to p- kind of picture these countless Christians suffering martyrdom there. Um, when in fact, uh, unfortunately, the his actual reliable historical evidence of any Christians uh, being martyred in the Colosseum is is pretty much zero. Um, there are myths and legends that develop centuries and centuries later, almost a thousand years later, is when they begin to talk about the Colosseum as a place where Christian martyrs died. Now, that's not to say there weren't Christian martyrs in Rome. It's just the location was okay. wrong. Um, so the the real location of most Christian martyrdoms uh, where they were executed for what I say entertainment purposes in, in a in a theater or something was at the uh what's called the circus of nero or circus of gaius which is actually in the vatican hill which is mm. why saint peter's cathedral is built there it was built at a place where peter's bones were deposited after he was uh executed in this um stadium or circus uh used for um um, feeding criminals to lions, et cetera. So that's where most of the early Christian martyrs would have been would have been killed. And, and in fact, if you go to Rome today, to the Vatican, there's a, a garden up there um, commemorating um, the death of the early Christian martyrs, a very beautiful place to, to commemorate that. Colosseum, of course, is uh, it's there. It's a place that attracts a lot of tourists, and you can see why people would want to use it as a commemoration for martyrdom. Mm-hmm. I have not been to to Italy, but uh, yeah, that would make sense to me. It's a very iconic right. place, and yeah, and, yep. and and we hear the stories that were you know that they would feed oh, yeah. people to the lions, and 
Yeah. So the stories are true. It's just the place is, is not right. So that's kind of what we do throughout the book is some of these myths are based on some uh, some historical truths, but we, we try to set the record straight. Mm-hmm. So um, medieval period, um, chapter 11, you talk about nothing good came from the Dark Ages. That's the urban legend. And, right. and the yeah, medieval he, period would be 500 to 1500. We do, yeah, we do 500 to 1500, about a thousand years there. Um, it's a big chunk to to cover, but yeah, the yeah, there's this Protestant myth that uh, the the myth, even the the term Dark Ages is already sort of uh, prejudicing mm-hmm. your investigation of the thing. You know, it's like who wants to go into that dark and dangerous? Well, where does valley? that come from? As long as you bring it up, did- yeah, we we talk about that a little bit. It it actually comes from um, you know people who were who were Renaissance uh, humanists who wanted to kind of look back and see, you know, the golden age and the classic era of the Greeks and the Romans, right. Mm-hmm. Where architecture and art and poetry and literature was, was at its peak. And then there's this revival or Renaissance this new birth and rediscovering these ancient sources. And, and so what they've done then is said, look, this big gap between our revival of the classics and the classic period is dark in comparison. So that really came from among the, the Renaissance okay. period, 1300s, 1400s. And of course, Protestants are going to pick this up Protestants in a sense. And I am one, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of critiquing my own tradition. Um, they're going to pick up this Renaissance sort of, disdain or disfavor with the medieval dark ages and have a tendency to want to jump all the way across to some figures like Augustine or some of the patristic um, uh, figures who in their mind represented a much more pure theology uh, compared to the medieval scholastics and mystics. So, so it's just a way of telling the story that I think is a bit unfair because we do see a lot of positive things that come from the middle ages and they're worth our study. Mm -hmm. Well, what uh, do you have some examples of what maybe some of those more bright moments or figures in the middle ages? Yeah, sure. Um, So some of the things that come uh, are good models for uh, education, Christian education, Uh, a lot of our um, ways of engaging culture, engaging the sciences, engaging the the arts, uh, incorporating those things, which have a strong, uh, rich Christian history. And I think sometimes when we're trying to reimagine how it is Christians are to live in a in a world and engage the best of what the world has to offer as far as intellectual philosophy, science. Um, we do have a, a fairly good pattern in that. People like uh, Anselm and Aquinas who are uh, using their mind, exercising their mind and their reason in the mm-hmm. service of theology. They didn't see a, a, a necessary conflict between those things. So I think that there's a lot of uh, benefit in looking at that, um, as well as spirituality. Um, you know, that these people weren't stupid. They knew that the church was corrupt and society was corrupt and things weren't going well. And you see a lot of um, ways of of reemphasizing popular piety, personal piety, you know, the monastic movements. We tend to picture them as these little hermits that go into a cave and, you know, pray through some beads, when in fact, these were people who were engaging the poor, um, setting up schools to educate peasants. Uh, You know, people don't realize that um, uh, in the Carolingian Renaissance, um, who who do we call it? Charlemagne, I guess we say, Uh, Mm -hmm. he he, he was motivated to institute universal um, education 
public education. Never actually achieved it, but that was a big priority back then. So there are a lot of positive things um, uh, theologically, intellectually, spiritually that came out of the Middle Ages that can serve as as uh, models for us to follow. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned a couple figures, um, Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. He was about, uh, am I correct? He was early 800s? Yes, correct. Ninth century. Okay. And then you mentioned Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And um, he's often seen as a, a, a huge figure within Roman Catholicism. Sure. But um, I've also noticed that, uh, you know, like R.C. Sproul really admired Thomas Aquinas. I, right. think, I think it was one of his favorite medieval or, or older sure. theologians. Yeah, in the Protestants themselves, you know, they had a lot of positive things to say about Thomas Aquinas. Not everything, obviously. Mm-hmm. I like to say, you know, if you read through uh, Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologica, the his magnum opus, you know, when he's dealing with um, classic Orthodox theology, the Trinity and the, the existence of God and the attributes of God, these kinds of things, he shines. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. But then he tends to take these sudden, you know, left turns into the ditch when he deals with, you know, his job is to defend, um, you know, medieval Roman Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. So he'll take these turns that uh, you just can't go along with. But uh, again, he, when he's good, he's really, really good. And I think we're, we as discerning Christians can draw on some of that. And I think you can understand why a lot of Protestant evangelical scholars today are, are, um, appreciative at least of some of the positive things that he contributed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, chapter 19, you talk about the Eastern and Western churches uh, split. This is the urban legend that they split yeah. over just one word in the creed. Right. And this is one of those things where there's a, there's a nugget of truth to it. And it is the, many of uh, the listeners may be familiar with the Nicene or Nicene Constantinopolitan creed um, in this phrase about the Holy Spirit. It has to do with the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father. And uh, that was the original creed saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And over the course of centuries in the West, uh, the Latin speaking church, they, they began to add this additional statement in in latin it's just one little compound word filioque mm-hmm. which means and the son so he proceeds from the father filioque and the son just a little tiny word and the eastern church of course uh orig- maintaining the original creed uh with the spirit coming proceeding from the father uh objected to this addition and so on the surface of it it looks like the split was over uh, this one word, this conflict over this one little word that was added, when in fact, um, the conflict was really over who has the authority to establish the standards for Christian doctrine. In the East, it was the conciliar approach. That is, we came together as a council, East and West, North and South, we agreed on this particular language, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And then years later, the Western Church feels like they have the authority to mm-hmm. add in their own little twist on it. And it became then ultimately a conflict between authority. Is it the church as a whole through whom the Holy Spirit is working? Or in the West, is it the Pope who has the final authority in these matters of faith and practice? So if you step back, it it actually is a big issue over who has the authority to establish these doctrinal standards. Um, you know, and the Protestants later on would say, um, 
we lean far more with the East and on this, even though they, they didn't really mess with the filioque the clause itself. So sometimes some of these urban legends are based on a kernel of truth, but uh, in the end, the, the fallout of that was that the East and the West condemned each other um, to hell and divided, and they are divided to this day. This is why you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to have any trouble with time. <laughs> I think we're moving pretty quickly here. <laughs> we're good, I noticed, yeah. I noticed I'm, we're only uh, just shy of 23 minutes into recording. Good. And uh, halfway through what I've got. So um, I might maybe have to ask for some of your favorites when we're done. Sure, that's fine. But um, part three is the Protestant era, 1500 to 1700. And I went with chapter 24, which says uh, the reformers removed the apocrypha from the Bible. Oh, yes, that is a big one, um, especially when I'm interacting with, uh, you know, Roman Catholics or people who have big questions. I will say that this, that the um, Protestants in general, but, you know, my own kind of a free church, uh, independent church tradition, we're not really, really good uh, at church history and mm-hmm. especially not really good at, at understanding canonicity, where the Bible came from, why these books and why not others. Um, so there's a lot of myths surrounding that. Um, but one of them has to do with the Apocrypha. And, and the common myth out there is that uh, somewhere along the line, the Protestants decided that the apoc- what we call the Apocrypha just weren't up to snuff for whatever reason. Usually the, the story goes that they are they contain uh, heretical teachings or teachings that are contrary to the gospel or teachings that support Roman Catholic doctrines. And so we're going to set them aside, sort of boot them out of the, out of the canon and then just canonize um, our 66 books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is um, those apocryphal books never were uh, universally accepted by the church, either the early church, or the, even the medieval church. And uh, even into the Reformation, they were um, regarded as disputed work. So some church historians, uh, sorry, some church fathers or some church scholars accepted them as scripture and others didn't. Whereas everything else, Old and New Testament from the patristic period forward, uh, there was unanimous consent and, and agreement on everything else, all the other, these 66 books. So when the Protestant Reformation comes along, uh, they are simply revisiting an issue that has, it's kind of like a court case that has never really been settled. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's still ongoing. It's an open case. And the Protestants land uh, along various church fathers. We kind of delineate them. Uh, people like Jerome and some of these other fathers who, and, and theologians who had a dim view of the, uh, of the Apocrypha. Uh, as far as their canonicity, whereas the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, which was the Counter-Reformation after the Reformation, um, they, 1540s, that's where they actually then officially canonize or declare these things to be scripture, uh, holy scripture at the same level as everything else. So so technically, uh, if you want to be fair with the history, the Roman Catholic Church dogmatically uh, made them canonical in the 16th century. The Protestants did not kick them out of the canon. And that, that whole idea of canonicity is really a major, major issue. Mm-hmm. Not just yes. on this regard with regard to the Apocrypha, but with other you know, myths and urban legends about how the canon 
came together in came the first to place. Yeah, and that's what, another one that we deal with as well. I can't remember the exact chapter. Yeah, but, I was um, just looking at myself. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, there, um, there are some myths that, uh, that it was decided at Nicaea. For instance, correct, correct, right, and, and so we deal with that. Either the, you know, we deal with a myth of whether an emperor, you know, did Constantine pick these books, or did a council vote on them, or like Nicaea. Um, and the reality is, with uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, there's no record historically of any council. Uh, it, it, the picture people have in their mind of these hundreds of books, perhaps, and they're working through them one at a time, mm-hmm. or they're are they coming together with this collection before there was a vague idea of the of of Christian books and now they've kind of settled on these, particularly these 26, 27, 66 books or whatever. Um, when in fact nothing of the sort ever happened. Even the lists that we do have in some of the local councils uh from the fourth century are basically the equivalent, of, they're descriptive, they're not prescriptive, they're mm-hmm. basically like ripping the table of contents out of our Bible and saying, here, these are the ones that we use in our region. Um, so they've all, they're already there. Uh, they're not judging which ones should be in or not. So the real truth is uh, in the, in the history of canonicity is um, from the out, right out the gate in the first century, uh, the books that we have in our old and new Testament, the great majority of them seem to have been universally accepted by everybody from the start with no questions. Mm-hmm. They're citing them, they're quoting them. Uh, the four gospels, Matthew, uh, I mean, Romans, first Corinthians, second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all of these people are talking about them. Like they've always been there from the start, but I do acknowledge, and this is what we have to acknowledge for a couple of centuries. There are a, literally a handful, five or six um, books that are Christian writings. They're perfectly fine. But they're not canonical. That right. Some people, right? Some people wanted to treat as scripture. And on the other hand, there are a handful of New Testament writings, James, Hebrews, Second uh, Peter, a couple of these books that do belong in the New Testament and were ultimately universally accepted that some people in some places for a time were very hesitant about. Um, but one thing the listeners have to realize is never at any time were completely heretical Gnostic books, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, these kinds of books. At no time did the church ever even entertain the possibility that those should be included. But really, already around the year 100, we have the the great majority of our Old and New Testament books fully intact with no question or doubt about them. Uh, And finally, around the fourth century, even that handful of of ins and outs um, where there was some debate, uh, those were settled as well. So um, the only exception, of course, being the Apocrypha that we mentioned, that mm-hmm. for centuries, it was a kind of an off again, on again. We like them. No, we love them. No, mm-hmm. they're inspired. No, they're just inspiring. And that continues on, uh, well, frankly, even to this day, as the debate between Protestants and Catholics goes. And if you don't mind my deviating a little bit, um, sure. I, I can kind of understand where, uh, as we're talking about church history, where there might be a little bit of controversy over New Testament books, but yeah. I've always wondered why would there be controversy over Old Testament? Would they not have been already basically canonized by the rabbis before right. the New Testament period comes about? <laughs> yeah, the the reality is even in the first, second century, the 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 Jews themselves had a few 
handful of doubts about some of the books. So um, basically, the earliest Christians were Jews, and they inherited Mm -hmm. the Old Testament canon, along with what we call the Apocrypha and the additional writings that are just part of the the collection of Jewish traditions. Uh, So I like to say, look, the earliest Christians inherited uh, the Jewish scriptures along with uh, any doubts or um, additional apocryphal writings that the, that the Jews themselves had. So, so for instance, Esther, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. notoriously been doubted by some rabbis because it doesn't mention the name of God in it. Mm-hmm. Although I think you have to be completely blind <laughs> to not see God all over that, yeah. that writing. But, um, and, and, you know, so some Jews accepted it. Others had some doubts. Books like uh, e- Ezekiel, in fact, was doubted by some rabbis. Um, so again, some of those and the apocrypha that mm-hmm. we that we mentioned, um, the same kinds of we like it, but we're not we don't want to quote it as prophetic scripture. But on the other hand, it's not nothing. Those kinds of doubts that the Jews had were just transferred into the early church, mm-hmm. and they they continued to foster uh, fester. So yeah, so but for the most part, you know, I like to say ninety five percent of the Old Testament. Uh, was fully intact without any doubts um, from the very beginning. And the same is pretty much true with the new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we've, I've always kind of wonder, you know, pardon me if I stay on a little bit of deviation, but no, um, where we we have some of those ca- canonized scriptures, but um, the, the Jews had fewer books. I mean, they had the same books, but they had fewer because they've right. got some that are combined and combined, uh, yeah. you know, first, second Kings, first, second Samuel, those, you know, right all one book or Jeremiah Lamentations is one book or, or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, um, Ezra and Nehemiah had it tended to be kind of coupled together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they would just group together all of the minor prophets, you know, mm-hmm. these are the, you know, the, the book of the prophets. So and in and, and the order of the canon, you know, our canonical order is going to be different than the, the Jewish canonical order or the, or the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. So, um, so we can't, be too picky about canonical order or numbering of books, things like this. So, so my wife yeah. is from Germany and, you know, uh, her first four books of the Bible, even the names of the books are different, you know, first Moses, second Moses, third Moses, oh. fourth Moses, you know? <laughs> so, you know, the naming of them and even chapters, you know, the way they're arranged are sometimes a little different. So mm-hmm. uh, we can't get hung up on those things, but uh, yeah. I think we have to, re- we do, I think it's very, very important for Christians to understand the the facts and the fiction regarding the the history of the scriptures, how it has come down to us, and this whole idea of canonicity. And I'd like to say, look, we have to remember, uh, canonical does not mean that the books of the Bible measured up to some sort of standard. You know, the word canon means standard or Mm -hmm. rule. It's not that these books of the Bible have measured up to some sort of external standard. When we say that this book is canonical, we mean that it is the standard and it has been accepted and acknowledged as the standard against which everything else is measured. So it's not that somebody else has authority, either a pope or an emperor or council um, or a scholar to take the Bible and measure it against some external standard. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, that needs to be clarified. Yeah. Well, thank you for that deviation. That, that's, uh, that's like said, it's, it's, it's fun, uh, fun to talk about. Like I said, I enjoy history so much. And so, and that yeah. c- canon is such a big thing that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's vital for us, especially, and it mm-hmm. always has been. It's a huge, important uh, 
question, and um, we, that's why we deal with it in two different, two separate well, chapters. We deal with it some in, in apologetics and in evangelism, mm-hmm. you know, trying yes. to answer some of those unbelievers wondering, well, what about these, you know, Gospel of Thomas and whatnot? And, Correct. Yeah. And mm. where did they get them? They got mm-hmm. these, nobody would have even heard of the Gospel of Thomas if they weren't watching, you know, PBS specials and the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's, they're, you know, we're in a culture of a lot of these um, myths and urban legends that we need to be able to to address. Mm-hmm. So getting back to uh, the Protestant era, um, sure. the other chapter that piqued my interest was uh, the one, uh, 26, the, the chapter title is that the Anabaptists were the predecessors of the modern Baptists. And it interested me because my understanding of Anabaptists, Anabaptists is actually probably lacking to some regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As is most people, they hear the word Baptist in there. You know, uh, the Anabaptists, you can't equate with modern day Baptists any more than you can equate John the Baptist. You know, it was, it's um, just because the word is there doesn't necessarily mean there's this historical connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, st- I want to start by saying that uh, with modern day Baptists or even our um, 17th century early English Baptists, there is a, what we call, we historians, you know, we call it a typological relationship. That is, um, the Anabaptists embraced uh, uh, credo-baptism or believer's baptism, um, as did the early English Baptists from the 16th, 17th century primarily. So so they, they were both arriving at the same conclusions. But there isn't what we call a a genealogical relationship. That is, this movement or this kind of like the um, um, the a denomination, mm-hmm. a, a church and a member of a denomination that's been around for a couple centuries has this genealogical connection to that to the, their forefathers in that denomination. So it's not quite the same. Um, you know, when we when we say Anabaptist historically, we're talking about. Um, groups from the Reformation, um, like the Swiss Brethren, um, the the what eventually became the Mennonites and Amish groups, the Hutterites. Um, there are th- these kinds of groups that some of them are still around, some of them not. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Mennonites are the most common uh, heirs of the uh, that Anabaptist European Anabaptist tradition today. So, generally speaking, there's not a, a close connection between modern Baptists and, and the Anabaptist tradition. Um, in fact, personally, I've encountered more churches today, uh, like independent Bible churches that have Anabaptist background. <laughs> they were Mennonite or whatever, and they eventually just sort of became independent mm-hmm. Bible churches or non-denominational churches. Uh, then I've seen Baptist churches in America, especially a lot of our Baptist churches were, or Baptist leaders were, say, Presbyterians or Congregationalists who basically just change their view of infant baptism and uh and that's pretty much all it took to be to be a baptist um but a lot of our you know that baptist movement has its origins in um smith and the the more 17th century um baptist english baptist movement yeah so i have no formal theological training i've been a believer for 21 years coming up on 22 years soon and uh and this idea of uh like like I think you kind of described it as a genealogy of uh, denominations and stuff. It's something that interests yeah. me, but it's been with no formal training. Sometimes it's hard to to kind of pick through and and see where one comes from another. Comes from it's another. very interesting <laughs> to me, and I appreciated that when you 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 
you demonstrated how what we know as Baptists really came out of England. Yeah. Whereas the yeah, Anabaptists primarily. were more uh, con uh, continental Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, I'll tell you, that don't, don't feel bad because even if you have a lot of training in this, it's still very complicated. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the the Mennonites themselves were were usually a, see, are usually seen as a, a kind of a coming together of all of these poor, disillusioned uh, Anabaptists from a number of previous movements. And so it's it gets very, very confusing very quickly. This is why there's a, you know, ha whole handbooks on denominations mm -hmm. to sort of try to, <laughs> yeah. you know, untie these knots. Well, and then there are, uh, my, if I understand correctly, there are some more heretical threads of Anabaptism Correct. versus more orthodox threads as well. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so I'm primarily talking about what, what we would consider as more orthodox um you know, heirs of the Protestant theology, but uh, there were, you know, the Unitarians, Universalists, um, what we call European liberal theology. A lot of those have their roots in what's called the rationalist branch of the Anabaptist, um, you know, anti-Trinitarian Anabaptists. Michael Savitas, for instance, mm -hmm. that, you know, notoriously known uh, as his, with his about his conflicts with um, John Calvin in Geneva, was burned at the stake. Sadly, but uh, he was uh, an Anabaptist from that rationalist anti-Trinitarian tradition. So, uh, a lot of those those traditions do, um, you know, don't obviously give Anabaptists a good name. But even some some listeners might remember stories of uh, uh, conflicts Martin Luther had with uh, with um, Thomas Munzer and the Peasant Revolt, and uh, the taking the idea of Christian liberty to this extreme and trying to overthrow the government and the church. And revolt and armed rebellion. Well, those were from among uh, militant Anabaptists. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, there was a. There, when we say Anabaptists, we're not talking about a a single monolithic tradition any more than than that would be true about Baptists today. Mm -hmm. And that also demonstrates that they came about pretty quickly within the Protestant era. If they're dealing they did, with Martin yeah. Luther and then into uh, John Calvin, that's right. In fact, uh, you know they they. Some of the earliest Anabaptists arose uh, under the teaching of Zwingli in Zurich and uh, very quickly, um, mm. you know, broke away. So they're, um, they are uh, a tradition from among the Protestants that are often overlooked. We think of Calvin and Zwingli and Luther, mm -hmm. but your Anabaptist traditions as well have uh, a history that goes back into the first couple of decades of the Reformation. Mm. Very interesting stuff. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, so getting into the modern age, which would be 1700 to present, uh, I picked 37, which is the the church has never been as divided as it is in the modern era. I mean, isn't that really true of anything, not just the church? I mean, we're going through <laughs> very contentious oh. politics right now, and we want to sure. think that it's never been worse than it is. Yeah. And when, in fact, it's pretty easy for an American historian, and I'm not an American historian, but I know them and you know they're they're very quick to point out you know fist fights and you know in congress or you know duels the duel, you yeah. know, to the death well you know, you know we're, mean, we're talking we about like contested elections and stuff and, it, and when you start getting into the history of that i'm I mean, just learning about that because they're talking about like january right. 6th and deciding the, the the electoral college and stuff it, yeah. it's really interesting to hear how that duel came about with uh yeah exactly was it madison and burr yeah, so it, you're you're right, and and it's um so you know you get a little bit of historical perspective in it. Hamilton, it does sorry, it was of, Alexander yeah, Hamilton. Hamilton. It does change things a little bit, but um, 
with regard to church history, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll have students, you know, that I get it. They're, they're dealing with their own personal church conflicts and things, and they come to me and want to, you know, they're, they're very disillusioned. You know, I, I just point to the church in Corinth. Even mm-hmm. the apostolic period, or or you know, half the churches in the Revelation two and three, they're they're this is never this is kind of how it's been from the beginning. There's been church conflict internally and externally, so this is nothing new. And if you look at church history, um, honestly, in many cases, um, you know where the where the theology really counts and the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith, uh, evangelical Protestant evangelicals, regardless of the denomination. Um, Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, you know, conservative Bible-believing Christians have more in common on the things that really matter Mm -hmm. than than we would with, um, obviously, with uh, any other kind of religious movement or cult, sects or cult. So, um, and in the early church, especially, um, there was a, uh, a lot of conflict over things like the trinity i mean the the arian controversy or the natures mm-hmm. of christ things that we can pretty much assume our fellow you know believers from different denominations are in agreement with us on so i would say we need to focus on those things if you focus on the the weighty issues of the christian faith there's a lot of unity mm-hmm. in uh the body of christ uh if you want to focus on those things that we would all acknowledge are not central to christian identity that's when you begin to see diversity and then conflict mm-hmm. yeah and you're talking about things like well going back to the baptist anabaptist versus the yeah the, the pedal baptism and uh eschatology i think you did have a chapter on eschatology in there yeah. I, did, I didn't yeah. put down but um that's a a big one today that we yeah. can we can have unity but despite uh, differing views. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's fine. I think these personally, I, you know, I have my eschatology and my view of the church and different things. And, and I find that, um, uh, my colleagues, friends from different traditions, they, they keep me honest, you know, and I've mm-hmm. had to nuance and modify things. And, and I think come to, to better expressions of my own view, even, uh, because of my interactions with these these uh, different perspectives. That's such a great, I'm glad you brought that up. It's such a great attitude to have amongst our, our brethren that have a little bit different points of view and stuff. And, and I've noticed that myself with, uh, you know, I'm a little bit more on the Baptist side too. You know, I'm sure a, yeah. a believer's baptism, but, but um, have great friendships among Presbyterians that uh, really challenged me. I talk about R. Scott Clark, who I've interviewed before, and you know he's yeah. he's very reformed and very guarded yeah. of that term reformed, and and for good reason yeah. and stuff. And and I I just enjoy so much getting challenged from from people from a little bit different points of view. Yeah, and and you know, and I'm not um, saying that interacting with people of different traditions is is necessarily going to change my mind about about things, no. but it does change my attitude. And I, yeah. I had. I, I, an interesting story. I, you know, I taught a teach a class regularly on the doctrine of the church on ecclesiology, and had a, a student in that that class who had been a Baptist, and he became he had become an Anglican over mm-hmm. a course of a couple of years, and um, then he had my class. You know, after he made this change, and he came up to me afterwards and said, "Look, you know, uh, I really wish I would have had your class before." I became an Anglican. He said, uh, I, I would have still become an Anglican, but it would have kept me from saying stupid things to my <laughs> Baptist friends. <laughs> and that, that was, a, you know, in other words, 
we have to understand different perspectives in order to to um, properly mm-hmm. uh, engage with them and and um, and appreciate them. To be honest, mm-hmm. isn't that kind of the natural tendency when we kind of drift from one school of thought to another? We we just want to go after that that first one and yeah, right. tear it down. Yeah, and- but but then you realize that you didn't really know as much about the, yep. the school of thought you were in. Yep. Uh, you know, I call it the I call it the uh, the used to phenomenon. You know, I used to be a Lutheran, <laughs> but now I'm a lot smarter. Is kind of the implication. I used to be a Baptist, but now I'm. So I, I try to I try to urge my students. Look, you, you can kind of hop traditions if you really have to, um, but you know, you're just tri- changing train cars. You're not really jumping to another mm-hmm. another rail it's it's uh we're all in this together mm-hmm. yeah well said so the last one i've got is uh 39 uh calvinists nearly killed evangelism and missions and non-calvinism non-calvinists revived them yeah uh, isn't okay. that a big one it is because it's and it's usually um you know i'm usually hearing these things from non-Calvinists or anti-Calvinists who will say, look, if, if God predestined, you know, the elect to be saved, why do evangelism? Um, it is kind of like a caricature of Calvinism that says, if Calvinism is true, there's no need for evangelism. Well, that's an absolute misunderstanding of Calvinism. You don't have to be a Calvinist, um, but you do have to understand and, and, uh, uh, actually represent it accurately. So, you know, Calvinism would not say, merely the ends are decreed, but also God works through means mm-hmm. to accomplish those ends. And he involves us and equips us and sends us and empowers us by his spirit to accomplish these means. All things work together. He works all things together um, for the sake of the, those who love him. So uh, you can't have one without the other in Calvinism, the end as well as the means. So, but the reality is in the, the, um, the explosion of what we call the, the birth of modern missions in the 19th century uh, were you know, these great figures that we hear of, um, y- you know, in the history books were Calvinists primarily. Even when they changed their view on, on baptism sometimes and became Baptists, they retained their Calvinist theology. So, uh, and they were driven to mission to missions because of proper understanding of Calvinism. And uh, you know, I was trained in you know growing up as many of us were at various evangelistic. Uh, techniques, you know, and um, one of them was evangelism explosion, which was, you know, huge um, approach from uh, a Calvinist perspective. And uh, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. Yeah, uh, it's the it's the approach that starts, um, you know, if if you were to die today, you stand before God, why would he and he asked you, why should I let you into into heaven? You know, that kind of everybody Uh has their own little hook. But that was a, you know, that was a big a big one. So it isn't true that uh, non-Calvinists, um, you know, sparked the modern missions movement. It was it was actually the Calvinists that that did that. Just to be fair, and and frankly, I, let me back up and just say, Calvinism, Arminianism, nobody has a monopoly on on missions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and nobody's nobody's theology excuses them from missions, and nobody's theology more. Um, um, strenuously or actively promotes uh, missions. Uh, all of us, regardless of our view on how it is that the Spirit brings us into the church, um, into into faith, uh, are responsible for being those mouthpieces of the gospel. And I think that, that mm-hmm. we have to be honest, um, honest with that. 
Yeah. And I appreciated that. And, um, I, I'm a little more on the, the Calvinist, uh, you know, soteriological side too. And, yeah. and, and I've, and I've seen that as, uh, you know, almost liberating, you know, in evangelism because the burden isn't on me. I'm just the messenger. You know, if I don't convince you uh, of Christ and your need for a savior, then, you know, that's, I, I did my job. I did what I was called to do. Right. Uh, right. And, and it seems like less of a burden than when, when I was of a more Arminian mindset that, well, I've got to talk you into it. I've got to convince you and you've got to, you know, I've got to show you. And, and that's, that's more burdensome in my opinion. Yeah. I, and I, I'm with you and, and I would hate to, and, and I am too. I'm, um, I would consider myself a Calvinist, um, uh, but I would, I, I think I would, it would be feel guilty if I thought that there was some combination of words said in a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, to be that extrinsic means to to convince this person who has the ability to believe but but won't and, and to to break down you know it seems to me that there's some co- would be logically some combination of words to uh to bring that about if i if i didn't hold to a kind of a calvinist perspective but again i don't want to caricature or or yeah. you know i i have very close friends and colleagues you know who are who are armenian and and uh they would might explain it to me a little differently um but i do find that we you know we we share a lot of lot in common with regard to proclamation of the gospel both views hold to the the need for this extrinsic pro- proclamation the extrinsic means that god uses to bring uh, his people to faith so we can agree on that yeah and and why it's because we have a little bit of time why don't we go into that sure. you had a chapter on on some of that and and the differences between um the the armenians and the calvinists and and that those differences Correct. aren't quite as much as as we would think today yeah. Well, yeah. And they're not in the, I, I have met people who identify uh, themselves as Armenians. And then I ask, well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, uh, you know, that term has seemed to change definitions over the years. Um, and so what I call classic Arminianism would share with Calvinists a, a belief in total depravity, that uh, we are essentially and unchangeably bad apart from God's grace. And the question, though, is how does that grace come to you. And so the the difference would be, of course, that the Armenian would hold to this thing called prevenient grace, that mm-hmm. um, Christ's death has won for all humans who are otherwise by default totally depraved and unable to believe, has granted them what what is, we may say, enabling grace to, to believe or the free will to believe. Um, not enough grace to save them, but enough grace to give them a choice, um, which you know, in my soteriology, I would not hold to that. Mm-hmm. I would not accept that. Uh, I would believe we're apart from a special work of grace upon the elect. Um, uh, there's no ability to believe, but, but I understand, you know, I had, uh, uh, if I can, if you could spare me a minute to tell an interesting Absolutely. story. Um, you know, I teach soteriology occasionally, not as much as I used to, but I remember walking through the issue of, of predestination and election and giving the kind of the biblical argument for it. And I had, uh, you know, in my class, uh, what I might call a, um, a rabid Calvinist, you know, <laughs> he was, you know, this is the only way and I'm going to, uh, bite you if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so he, um, he, uh, he's, he was shaking his head and he said, I can't understand how anybody could read Romans nine and not be a Calvinist. And I looked at him and I looked up at the clock <laughs> and I thought, okay, we're going to do this. Everybody <laughs> turned to Romans nine chapter, chapter nine, verse one. And I walked through that 
that chapter ex- explaining how I would read this if I were an Armenian um, and say, look, these, these, it's not like that, that Romans 9 isn't in the Armenian's Bible. It's just that they're reading it and they're under, there's a little bit of wiggle room. Now, I, do, I did admit that when we got to the end that I, as I was trying to read this as an Armenian, I felt this this sense of guilt because I don't think it's the best way to read it, sure. but it, it was a way. Right. Yeah. And so we have to be, we have to be honest. These aren't, aren't stupid people. Uh, Jacob mm-hmm. Arminius was not stupid, mm-hmm. um, but they are coming at this with a, with a number of different presuppositions and at certain passages where they place a little bit more weight and emphasis on. And um, I just don't get, get, get too worked up about those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, if you don't mind, I, I, I maybe I'd like to finish by asking your favorite chapter, if you've got one or. You, yeah, I, I like a lot of them. Uh, I think um, one that I think is very weighty is the 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 chapter on the, the doctrine of the Trinity. This mm-hmm. idea that the Trinity was a um, doctrine that developed much, much later in the church. Uh, I think in the Da Vinci Code, they try to say that. You know, it happened at the Council of Nicaea is where Jesus was declared to be God. Um, and so chapter eight, the doctrine of the Trinity developed centuries after Jesus, when it, it's just mm-hmm. simply not true. And we go through and show, look, from the very beginning, from the New Testament to the earliest Christian writings in an unbroken chain of confession, uh, the Christians confess that there's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God father is not the son the son is not the spirit the spirit's not the father and that's one god not three gods what what is true though is that in the fourth century um the church settled on more refined and precise technical language to describe the doctrine of the trinity so it was a development of what language are we going to use to describe what the church has always confessed when you look at second century church fathers uh you know their language of describing the relationship of father son and spirit is we would say pretty uh simple pretty straightforward pretty primitive um whereas fourth century and beyond it's a lot more refined and so there is Mm -hmm. development of the language but Mm -hmm. not development of the theology itself and we we have to make sure and that's true about a lot of doctrines maybe development of language and clarification but not of the the doctrine itself and i think that's because it's so important trinitarianism to the christian faith that that needs to be uh recognized well said thank you well that's all i have for today um it just closes there anything you want to add or direct people to the book or yeah whatever you want encourage people yeah, I'd encourage people to pick it up and read it. It's uh, it is church history, and that can be that can feel a little daunting at first. But it's um, I think you know the the urban legends approach, the forty myths that are debunked. Uh, I think uh, you would hopefully agree it was kind of a unique and fun way of of mm-hmm. reading church history. Um, you do learn something, I think. Um, oh, definitely. W- without being uh, bored, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, I think we've all been in those history classes where it seems like they, their primary didactic goal was to bore you to death. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something that we're trying not to do. Uh, and also, I would say, come at it with an open mind. Um, we acknowledge right up front that uh, me and my my co-author, John Adair, who is a professor uh, with me in my department, um, you know, we are coming at this with a a generally 
you know, we're Protestant, we're evangelical, we're Calvinistic. Um, mm-hmm. And so obviously all history is told from a certain perspective. Um, but we try to be fair. And uh, a lot of our people who have read it have said we've, you know, we, we've treated things fairly um, uh, graciously, even when we're dealing with positions and, and people that we disagree with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, I also enjoyed the the little mini myths that you kind of injected here and there too. Oh yeah. I have, we did really hurt some people's feelings, especially with the uh, St. Nicholas punching Arius in the nose <laughs> yeah. uh, at the council of Nicaea, you know, at around Christmas time, yeah, everybody's putting up these memes mm-hmm. about St. Nicholas punching Arius, but um, you know, it didn't happen. Unfortunately didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, well, who knows? I wasn't there, but yeah. you know, the, the myth myth developed centuries and centuries later. It's one of those things where I, I like to say that it's truth transcends its historicity mm-hmm. it's not true but it probably should have been <laughs> it should have been <laughs> i like that yeah well uh dr spiegel i enjoyed it and i thank you for your time and uh thanks for coming on with me and uh yeah thanks so much thanks for having me maybe we can do it again yeah i would love that echo zoe radio is an outreach of echo zoe ministries if you are blessed by the show please consider offering your support There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zori Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com slash support. That wraps up my episode 153. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 153. Be sure to check out the website also for links to connect with Echozoe on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Parlor, and would love to connect with you. So follow, like, and subscribe to Echozoe Ministries. And you can help us also get the word out by sharing or retweeting the announcements to your favorite episodes. And with that, Lord willing, we'll be back next month with the February episode of Echozoe Radio. 